You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. For everything else, if you can't buy groceries, if you can't afford your health care, even the very feeble United States safety net offers you something, you know, that you can get food stamps or you can get Medicaid. But if you can't pay your rent, we really offer basically nothing. You know, we tend to, as socialists, focus on Medicare for all as this big important demand, which it is. But if you think about it, the healthcare system isn't the primary way that the system punishes people for being poor. It actually really is through housing. two-part episode today, we begin with a conversation about efforts in the Mid-Willamette Valley to organize a rent strike being undertaken by Tenants United Corvallis, or TUC, a committee of the Mid-Valley IWW. That segment is followed by a talk with journalist Liza Featherstone about rent strikes in New York, as well as a larger conversation about relations of power between the tenant and the landlord class. First, Tenants United Corvallis. We speak with organizers Kaylee Doton and Travis Whitehead about their organization's approach to scaling up a rent strike during the current pandemic and the ensuing challenges that come when unable to have face-to-face conversations due to social distancing. Tuck is a committee of the Mid-Valley IWW, a labor union committed to the abolition of wages and classes that stands in stark political contrast to more prominent labor federations like the AFL-CIO. You can contact Tuck and the Mid-Valley IWW via their website at midvalleyiww.org. We have a couple of upcoming episodes on Labor Wave. One features Andrea Haverkamp, a PhD candidate in environmental engineering, about waste after the revolution. We'll follow that episode up with another new one from two striking graduate employee workers in the UC system about the wildcat strikes happening there and the current situation. Please help share our content by liking us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and subscribing to SoundCloud as well as Spotify for our show. And we also have a website that features all of our content for free at laborwaveradio.com. As a way of beginning, I'm hoping that the two of you can just introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about the Tenants United Corvallis, like what that organization is and what you are trying to accomplish right now. My name's Kaylee. And I'm a tenant here in Corvallis, Oregon, and a member of Tenants United Corvallis. And I'll let Travis explain what that is. My name is Travis. I live here in Corvallis, Oregon. I'm also a tenant. I've been living here for a couple of years and renting the whole time because, yeah, who can afford a house here? Tenants United Corvallis is a tenants union. I believe we formed maybe around two years ago. Um, a tenants union is basically a group of tenants or renters. It's comparable to the idea of a like labor union, but what we have in common is that we are all renting. And so the idea is that by working together as a union, we can build power for tenants and solve some of the housing issues here in Corvallis. Well, I want to hear more about those housing issues because as you just said in passing, who can afford to buy a house here? What is the situation in terms of housing in the Corvallis and Oregon area? I mean, I think the biggest issue that people have is just that it's so expensive. So Corvallis is a college town where Oregon State University is. And people would say that there's a shortage of housing. I don't know if I particularly believe that the issue is a shortage as much as the market and the landlords will decide how much people have to pay. Um, It's all about profit. So the biggest issue is that it's just so fucking expensive to live here, but there's also a lot of issues around people not having agency over their homes, not dealing with like shitty landlords that take advantage of them or don't want to actually do repairs. I don't know. Kaylee, do you think there's anything that I'm missing as far as general overview? 
Yeah, I think that a lot of management companies and property owners take advantage of the fact that so many renters in Corvallis are students and probably assume that they don't know what their rights are as renters. Just basic repairs and things that need to be done and kept up in rentals. There's the whole range from management companies that are definitely like slumlords here. And then you have people who own maybe one or two properties and consider themselves to be the good landlords that take care of their tenants. But of course, when you ask the tenants, that's usually not the case. Absolutely. What you said about taking advantage of folks who don't know about renting. Like I, when I moved to Corvallis, it was my first time renting. I had lived, you know, with my family up until then. You know, I didn't know how any of that shit works. Like, how do you decide where to move in? How do you go through all that paperwork? How do you make sure you get your deposit back? I remember like one experience, my, so I moved into an apartment and it was bought out by another property management company. And thankfully my roommate was more on top of this than I would, but we were like, we documented all the shit that was fucked up about this apartment when we moved in. And we weren't sure that those documents were going to make it over to the new property management company. And so she actually asked like, Hey, do we have to do anything to make sure that y'all know that all the shit was broken before we moved in? Or are you going to steal our deposits? And they actually wanted us to resubmit the paperwork and redocument everything all over again because they didn't get that paperwork handoff. And I can only think that so many of our neighbors didn't know they had to do that, which regrettably, I wish I was having more conversations with them at that time. But it's like all those, all those traps that you can fall into where they'll try to steal all your fucking deposit money. So many you know, people coming out of high school or renting for the first time, you just kind of jump right in and you get taken advantage of. So for Tenants United Corvallis, the organization has been really fully participating in trying to organize a rent strike locally. I want to hear a little bit more about that. But in particular, I'm hoping that you all can highlight the differences in organizing a rent strike, or at least the immediate challenges that you experience in a town the size of Corvallis versus a place like New York City, where a lot of attention has been spent on rent strikes and focus on that kind of urban environment. So what is it like organizing a rent strike in this local environment? When we were first talking about it, we were worried that we you know, may not be able to gain much momentum in the area. It was unclear how to sort of target specific areas, especially because a lot of the people who are currently active in Tenants United Corvallis don't necessarily rent in the large apartment complexes around here. So there were, you know, definitely in the beginning, we were trying to think, how can we strategize to fit the needs of this town? And it started out really quick. We were just like, okay, we're going to do this and let's write up some materials, put some language up and, you know, make sure we have a nice website and everything that people can go to. And let's just start like going out and canvassing. So we were putting flyers up all over. We focused on apartment complexes so that we could try and make sure that we were actually reaching people who rent rather than like own their own home. And then we were just sort of, you know, waiting to see if we would get responses because we made sure we had our contact information on there and using our own like personal connections to ask our comrades to also strike with us. So it, it, you know, there were, there were like big pushes at the beginning of each month, beginning of April and May to just try and get as many flyers out as we could. And we tried to keep like social distancing measures because of the pandemic. So we essentially were just putting things on people's front doorsteps, um, trying not to, you know, compromise anybody's health in that way. So that's one of the strategies that we've had. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting circumstance to have to adapt to because, you know, over the past two years, we've been, we were doing more door knocking, um, just knocking on people's doors and having conversations with tenants, trying to figure out what kind of issues they were facing. And that kind of way of operating is totally not possible right now because you don't want to be knocking on people's doors. They probably don't want to open the door and have a conversation with you, maybe like, you know, uh, with a healthy distance in the parking lot or something. But yeah, it's different because we have to leave letters and put other ways for people to find us and contact us. But we can't we can't just start a conversation. They they need to at least take some steps to reach out for that conversation to happen. Since Corvallis is not an area that has a lot of these large apartment complexes, there's not a lot of like density in the area in a place like you would have like in New York City. 
who become the targets of a wrench strike? Because it sounds like you might have to kind of adapt and adjust on those terms too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely easier if you have a massive apartment complex and you can just go from floor to floor and door to door. You can cover more ground a lot faster. Um, Corvallis is a little bit more spread out. So, you know, there are some big apartment complexes, but there's also, like, we're going on foot, so there's just more more walking to do. Um, you can cover less grounds. Um, I think, Kaylee, you mentioned that we were often focusing on apartment complexes because we knew that those people were all renters. It's it's also totally fine. Like we've just been leaving stuff on people's houses too, because you know if someone happens to own a house and they get a letter about a rent strike, maybe they're not renting, but they might still be excited to hear about that. You know, reach out to the union and help build the strike. And we've also been encouraging homeowners to join in solidarity in the form of a mortgage strike, where you just don't pay your mortgage. Yeah, and to add to that, we were thinking that potentially it would be best to focus on specific property management companies. There's like this company called Dirksen, which has, I'd say, the majority of the rental properties in town. And so we were also considering like, okay, how can we focus on their properties specifically and try and get as many renters under Dirksen to strike so that it actually like puts pressure on that management company itself. As we went along, we we sort of adapted our strategies and what we were demanding. Um, it became clear that we needed to bring the mortgage holders along as well, um, like Travis was saying. So it started out being more toward more geared towards renters and saying, you know, strike and here's our demands. But then we realized, okay, well, the demands aren't necessarily clear that we are trying to pressure these companies, these management companies and property owners to then pressure governments to have a rent cancellation and mortgage ca- cancellation during the pandemic. Can you speak a little bit more about the demands? So what exactly are the demands that you all are trying to issue? And Kelly, as you were saying, you are trying to leverage them at the local level and then scale them up at the more state or national level. Can you talk a little bit more about those demands and the strategy to accomplish them? One of our demands is that we want rent to be canceled. We're part of a national movement. So ideally that would be a national rent cancellation during the pandemic. And there is differing language across multiple campaigns for rent strike across the nation. We are demanding that we have a two months leeway after the pandemic ends, whatever that looks like, uh, for people to be able to return to work and save money to be able to afford rent. Yeah, and maybe this goes without saying, um, it might seem obvious, but the, the reason that we're demanding this is because people are losing their jobs and losing their income during this pandemic. And what that means is that their landlords have the ability to evict them for non-payments. And so we, we want to ensure that people don't have to pay rent in the coming months until they can return to that stability and security. And we're also demanding that there's no back pay. They shouldn't accumulate thousands and thousands of dollars in debt and be expected to set up a payment plan or take out a loan to pay that back. Um, there should be no rent owed and no back pay owed. Yeah, we're recognizing that at this time, you know, there are more pressing needs. You need to be able to feed yourself medical care, you know, taking care of your family and your communities. And people shouldn't have to choose ever, but especially during a time when millions of lives are at stake, um, shouldn't have to choose between feeding themselves or housing themselves. What has been some of the response and feedback with local tenants in the area when you've been able to have some conversations about the rent strike? Like as you were saying before, some of this stuff seems obvious, like have to state the facts of like, this is a pandemic. People shouldn't have to be imposed these choices upon them. But obviously that's not the ideological pool that we swim in. So what has been the response when you start talking about rent strikes and how have tenants been responding to these calls? I would say that some of the responses from tenants have been really positive. Um, I remember back in March before we had decided, our rent strike started on April 1st, and then toward late March is when we decided to start organizing this. Um, and I remember just seeing a post on a local, like a, a subreddit located about Corvallis or Oregon State University, I forget which, and someone was asking, is there a rent strike here in Corvallis? And if so, how can I help? And just seeing people, you know, not organizing around housing, not involved in our tenants union, asking about a rent strike made me feel like there was people in the community were saying that there was a need for this. 
And I recall other members of our union mentioned that when they were um, distributing those letters to our neighbors calling for people to join the strike, they would actually bump into people and have a conversation across the parking lot. And some tenants were like, they saw the letter and they were really happy that we were out there doing that. Uh, but of course, there's also all of these stuff where people are like, what about what about the small landlords? Aren't we hurting our landlords? And a little kind of narratives like that, that we kind of have to, you know, engage in conversation and talk about what this actually means for landlords. And it's, it's really not as bad as people want to make it out to be. Watching social media, people's reaction on that, because there was actually, you know, after the first phase of the flyering that we did, somebody actually posted on like the Corvallis people page. So it's like a big Facebook page where a lot of residents of this town follow it, right? It's a big group. And so somebody actually posted a photo of the flyer and this person was chastising it, right? Like you should not strike, you know, especially if you can pay rent, like this is so irresponsible. Um, But it ended up getting like probably, I would say like the most interaction that a post had ever had on that website. I don't know for sure, or on that page, but there were like close to 800 comments and there was a mixture. It was a mixture of people being pro rent strike people saying like what Travis said that like oh these poor small landlords you're only hurting them as well but you know in that time we were also learning like well actually even like the smaller landlords like they have a lot more protections and they always have a lot more power than renters do so financially they had more protection they have more protections during this time to you know defer their mortgage payments and to write off missed rent at the end of the year and like get a tax refund for that. Things that as renters, we just have like zero resources. It was hard to not engage and it was, and it was difficult to see like other people engaging, but I just kept trying to focus it on like, Hey, if you want to participate, if you need to participate, this is how you get a hold of us and just try to stay out of the whole argument. But that's also something that we're trying to continue to provide resources on is like here here are the ways that people who actually own the property can keep themselves afloat during this time more so than you know renters can earlier in the conversation we were talking about how a tenants union operates in a similar way as like a labor union i want to focus a little bit more on that like what are the similarities and differences because it's hard for me as a labor organizer to kind of wrap my head around the tactics and the weapons that are available for tenants and leveraging concessions from landlords and the landlord class, as it's maybe easier to identify those targets when you're talking about a workplace. So where do you see some of the approaches to organizing as similar? And where do you see the challenges really different and maybe even more challenging or more complex? I would say that there are some parallels between labor organizing and tenants organizing um, you know, like if you form a, a labor union for your workplace, generally you you have a you have your power, which is that you can choose not to work, you can go on strike, and you use that power to bargain and negotiate with your boss to get better wins for workers. And tense organizing can be similar. You can organize everyone in a building, or you can organize people under a specific property manager like Dirksen. And the power that tenants wield is that we are paying for their investments. We're paying for them to buy these homes. We're basically lining their pockets. But if we disrupt that flow of capital, we say we're not going to pay rent until you solve our problems, then we can get them to actually listen to us. And I would say that some of the differences is that it can be a little bit different in how you actually get in touch with people and organize. Um, Like if you, you know, if we all work in the same place, you already have some relationships and networks with the people in your workplace. You show up and you see them every day. Um, but when you're organizing tenants under, let's say, Dirks and property management, those could be people spread out all over different properties, all across town. And although it's pretty doable to start with your neighbors and start with the people in your building, there's also people that you probably have had no contact with that you're going to want to reach. And there are some strategies to work around that. Um, there's like a lot of public information about the ownership of properties for like tax assessment databases. And if you know your property or if you know your landlord's name or you look it up by plugging in your address, you can actually discover what other buildings are owned by the same people. And that's, that's like one place to start. Yeah. And I actually, 
definitely see more so similarities than differences with um, with labor and tenant organizing. Um, I have experience as a labor organizer and as a member of labor unions, and so, and then also you know as a tenant my entire life as well. And there are some differences in that, like it isn't you know a specific employer that's being targeted. It is multiple management companies, multiple property owners, like Travis mentioned. But as far as like the actual conditions and how the organizing happens, I think is very similar to labor organizing because you need to be able to find the people that you want to want to talk to. So find renters in town and that's similar to a workplace, right? You need to be able to identify who those people are, who the workers are. So identify who the renters are. And the differences in like working conditions for different people in say uh you know, university, right? So you have a broad range of people that are like faculty and they all have different working conditions, particularly segued into their own departments and things like that. Um, and then also the whole hierarchical structure of universities. You have research faculty and then you have tenured professors. So that is also similar to renters where you have people who maybe are facing issues with their landlords that are like really egregious they're just like living under really poor conditions and dealing with like real jerks right um and then you have people who may have better relationships with their landlords and better housing and all that kind of stuff and so i don't know again i think it's like similar in the ways that you can kind of frame how you need to speak to people how you need to identify the issues that people have and then having that organizing conversation where you're still trying to allow people to realize their power and harness it and figure out how to work together to make things happen. Yeah. It sounds like you're both saying in some ways the terrain is maybe different, but the methods and the methodology for victory is very much the same. Considering the pandemic that we're in, considering the certain unknowns that are in front of us, but obviously a lot of valid predictions that we're going to have multiple waves of this pandemic. How confident are you currently in succeeding in your demands and having some victories on the level of rent strikes? For me, it depends on the scale that we're looking at. It has been difficult to organize at a large scale in Corvallis, particularly because of the reasons we stated before. It's a college town. A lot of the students actually left once university stopped having in-person classes. And, you know, just sort of the less high density housing makes it harder to organize, you know, successfully for targets of like specific management companies, things like that. I'm always trying to remember that this is tied to a national call of rent strike. So for me, it's less about, okay, how how successful are we in Corvallis particularly? And more about, okay, how, how can we continue to be tied to what's going on in Portland at this time? Because it seems to be more successes happening there. Um, how are we tied to New York, right? It's always trying to remember that this is not like a myopic thing and that solidarity actions matter. And that, you know, the people that are striking here in Corvallis, like, are realizing their power. We're gaining uh, membership into Tenants United Corvallis because of this. People are realizing, oh, there is a, a tenants union in this town. And I think a lot of people are realizing that because of the pandemic and government's responses to it, that we really have to put things in our own hands and like take control of our lives. You know, those are the kind of successes that I see locally, nationally. Yeah, like I, I think if we look at it so narrowly that a victory means our specific demands are met, then we're not looking at it the right way. I think there's a lot of different forms of victories. And like, sure, maybe that that bill that uh, Omar proposed to cancel rent, maybe that'll get passed and that would be awesome. Uh, but there's, there's different paths towards canceling rents. You know, if we, by striking, like us striking in Corvallis and all these other cities across the U.S., if that creates enough upward pressure on the state and on the banks to actually take some kind of widespread action, that would be one form of victory. Another form of victory could be organizing a specific building and having that building work with their landlord or property manager and get the people with direct power over them to say, okay, you don't have to pay rent. You don't owe any more rents. The possible victories that I see 
um, that I think are most important is keeping people in their homes, you know, like regardless of the whole rent, whether it's canceled technically or not. Um, if, if we can fight with people who are being threatened with evictions for not being able to pay, and we can stir up enough trouble that their landlords will back down and say, okay, I'm not going to evict you because you can't pay. That's a very real victory because we're actually defending the people in our communities um, and, and ourselves. And even just like the little victories, like just having conversations with someone um, that messages our Facebook page and just letting them tell us about what they're facing and talking about how we can support them. And them just saying that they feel they feel supported and they feel less alone. That's that's a victory to me. Um, so there's there's thousands of possible victories. And I think we're achieving little ones all the time. And I think maybe we could achieve some bigger ones. But the, the demands are just, you know, that's that's the ideal that we're striving for. And like like Haley said, we're we're building power as we go through this, regardless of whether we've met our demands or not. Um, our union is becoming bigger. More people are getting plugged in and, and actually pitching in time and energy to build power for tenants. And so this is going to be a lasting institution, this tenants union that is going to continue to fight for tenants, hopefully into the far future. Well, until there is no more rent, right? And we abolish the landlord class. Hell yeah. You know, you mentioned like multiple waves of the coronavirus, you know, reinfections and things like that, especially with states now trying to reopen the economy, whatever that means. And, you know, that's happening here in Oregon. And so we will most likely see a resurgence of this outbreak. And then, you know, people will be out of work again, right? People that are now trying to go back to work, going to put people out of work again. And so it's hard to tell, like, how long this will be going on. But like Travis said, you know, we're going to start focusing on on making sure that people aren't actually removed from their homes, that they aren't evicted. And that I think is important. How can our listeners in the local area plug into Tenants United Corvallis? Like how are there ways to contact and get engaged in the rent strike? And how can listeners outside of the area plug into the national rent strike going on? So plug into Tenants United Corvallis. There's a couple of ways that you can do that. You can shoot us an email at tenantsunited at riseup.net, or you can go to our website, tenantsunitedcorvallis.org. On our website, there's a pledge form, which is pledging to join the rent strike. Regardless of whether you're using that to say you're joining the rent strike, it'll also shoot a message to us. So if you just want to get in touch with us, um, that's one way to do it. I believe our, our email address is also on our website. We also have a Facebook page, Tenants United Corvallis, that you can shoot a message to. Uh, there's a number of ways. I think we have a Twitter, too. And in terms of like broader rent strike movements, I'd say just start by searching online to see if there if there is a tenants union or a rent strike or some kind of housing advocacy or support group in your town and get in touch. See what's happening. See what kind of help they need to further their organizing and, and further the power that that they have in whatever whatever place they are, and you could you could even start a tenancy in your town if one doesn't already exist. Well, with that, I really appreciate both your time, Kaylee and Travis from Tenants United Corvallis, and good luck scaling up the rent strike. Hope we have you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Alex. Yeah, thanks for having us. After our musical break, we'll return with Liza Featherstone.
Our second segment is a conversation with Liza Featherstone, a journalist and journalism professor who writes frequently on labor and student activism for the nation and Jacobin. She recently penned the piece for Jacobin magazine, On Strike, No Rent, which serves as the basis for our discussion. Okay, so you wrote an article that was launched on May Day for Jacobin about rent strikes being organized in New York City. I'm curious if you have any kind of information or updates about how successful has that strike been, or do we even know how many people meaningfully participated in it versus those that were just beholden to not being able to pay rent? I mean, it's fascinating. I don't think that people really do have any idea um, how many people participated um, in the rent strike in New York City. And I suspect that's similar for rent strikes um, uh, going on elsewhere. As you suggest, so many people just can't pay rent. And by calling a rent strike in this moment, um, what the um, organizers are, are trying to do is invite all of those people who can't pay rent into a political act, and and also it, it and by calling attention to it in that way, it shows a strength in numbers and a and, and a and a hope um, for political pressure, particularly political pressure on um, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is the only person who has the power in the situ- to actually um, change the situation. Some people are striking against their individual landlords, hoping to um, get some leniency. And that's great. And I think people will have some success in that. But to change the situation as a whole, only Cuomo can cancel rent as the hashtag is for everybody, um, which um, would help them to not put this pressure on the tenants. So um, he really is the, the, the person at the top controls this, um, this situation. As far as impact, Governor Cuomo did extend the eviction moratorium. There was there was already in place um, a moratorium on um, on evictions. He extended that. That's disappointing for the striking tenants because it it's not the same as canceling rent. Like it it just kind of kicks the can down the road and means that you will, will still have to pay rent later. 
um, which could really um, create a crisis of indebtedness for a lot of, of people. Um, however, him doing that does suggest he felt a little tiny bit of pressure, and so the idea, so I, uh, the the idea I assume from the movement would be to escalate that pressure and get more concessions. Yeah, so I was curious about because in your article for Jacobin, you mentioned that Cuomo is really the prime target, like the main person that people are targeting. What are the specific demands that they are pushing on? Uh, because, like you said, moratorium is not sufficient, and probably the existing protections that currently exist are also not sufficient. So, like, what are they actually pushing for? The the real demand is to cancel rent, to say that rent doesn't have to be paid during this period. Not to say you don't have to pay rent now, just to say no for this period there is no rent. And the interestingly. Um, I mean, the the real estate industry, they're pressuring Cuomo too, because they're seeing that people can't pay rent and they want a bailout from him of some kind because um, of the growing strength of the left, of the affordable housing movement in um, in New York, which is stronger than it has been in many years. You know, if this were happening a few years ago, before we had a socialist in the state Senate, before we had, um, you know, a thriving DSA chapter, you know, before we had so, um, so so many um, tenants organizations. um, So if this were happening a few years ago, he just would have bailed out the real estate industry and let the tenants um, starve in the street. But I, I think the political climate has changed enough that it would be very awkward for him to do that at this point. And, and not to mention, we're really in a very exceptional situation with the coronavirus, I mean, and with um, unemployment, like worse than the Great Depression and you know, real estate being such a, a powerful piece of political capital in New York State, but suddenly an, an unsustainable one, you know, as so many people just lack income. I mean, it's really, it's a combination of, you know, good for the left for having built a little bit of power to be prepared for this moment. But wow, what a moment. I'm trying to think of some metaphor that uh, you know those tv pundits use it's a tinderbox or you know (laughs) (laughs) well i i want to hear more about your thoughts on this because i you know in your article you mentioned some of the political leverage that potentially available to us right now and one of the things is like the real estate industry in general has become pretty easy to villainize which good and i think about that and like you know donald trump is like a a big slumlord, right? So this is the probably the most unpopular person in the country is a big slumlord. So this is a good opportunity. But what what leverage do we really have right now against landlord class? So right now specifically, I think that um, the more enlightened parts of the capitalist class, and we'll we'll see to which <laughs> group of these Governor Cuomo belongs, are realizing that. Homelessness is a major vector for disease right now. I mean, if, if you, I mean, if, if all of a sudden, you know, people who, um, you know, a couple months ago had um, nice jobs working in the advertising industry and now are homeless and, you know, more vulnerable to coronavirus and, you know, making it more difficult for um, us to move past this public health crisis. I, I think that that um, has to have occurred to them, and if not, we need to be reminding them every second. That, you know that um, more homelessness people is more homelessness is going to create more um, add to the public health crisis. And I also think, in, in terms of leverage, the real estate industry can't make profits if if people can't pay rent. The bank it's a crisis for the banking industry if people can't pay their mortgages. I think that in New York State right now, it, it would be, it would probably be political suicide to bail out those industries w- without providing 
um, some relief to tenants and small um, small homeowners. I mean, I think Governor Cuomo is so terrible. So, like, let me let me not um let me not imply that I have like faith in him that he's going to do the right thing. But I do think that the political, I mean, this is somebody who like as the bodies piled up around throughout New York City, cut the hospital budget, you know, as you know, as tents were erected in Central Park because of a lack of hospital capacity, he cut the hospital budget. So it's it's not that I think that he's going to, um, that we can count on him to do the right thing. But I do think that the pressures on the capitalists I think will will create pressures on him, and there's no really no other solution to the capitalist problem other than to get um, relief from Cuomo. And um, at some level, it's I, I think it's politically unsustainable for him to um, do that without some relief to tenants. It's very interesting because for years and years, I mean, I'm like kind of a old socialist. <laughs> I mean, I've been a socialist for many decades. And, you know, we always used to say around New York City, uh, like, like, but like, just, you know, all those of us old socialists would always say, it's very nice you have these liberal politicians, as long as they're taking money from the real estate industry, nothing will change. Which back then sounded like this sort of cranky thing that old socialists would say. But it was true, <laughs> like many cranky things that old socialists say. People to have figured this out in the last few years, like that. Um, that you know, you you have to completely mistrust and treat as antagonists any politicians that are taking money from the real estate industry because it is the root of um, basically bourgeois politics in the in New York City. And once you um, stop doing that, stop treating any of those people as if they're on your side and start developing your own political capacities independent of that industry. We have seen that some things can happen. Um, so like a few years ago, uh, no, not even a few years ago, last year, <laughs> everything seems like so long ago because we're in our houses all the time. Last year, they, um, New York State was able to, um, to get the um, most comprehensive and far-reaching tenant protections that we've gotten for years. It was like the it was the first time in in many decades that any progress had been made on that issue. I mean, just like year after year, tenants were just asked to um, suck up the high cost of living in New York City, and it was just seen as like if you don't like it, move. You know, basically, you know, and um, you know, voila. I'm looking at my window right now and like, you know, we've just got these useless luxury housing, you know, you know, they're just like, they're just going up all over the city and it's, it's so parasitical. I mean, it just doesn't address the housing needs of the vast majority. So we got to keep fighting them. I recall this consistently quoted line that David Harvey likes to use from angles about how the capitalist class doesn't have the ability to solve its crisis. It only has the ability to move it around, which I think is a pretty powerful summary of like what housing looks like here. And so many things. It, it's, it, it's, it's a really great piece of analysis right there. You could say the same thing about the environmental crisis, although I sincerely hope not because we do need them to solve that now. Um, but, you know, I mean, you could say the same thing about social reproduction, you know, the care, care of children, you know, whatever. I mean, like all of those things, like um, capitalism can barely even move that around. Well, and I wonder about, so like, not just New York City, but places like San Francisco and Oregon, there's a statewide housing crisis. That's all the time. Like everybody's getting priced out everywhere. And I've had those moments of wondering, like, how can capitalists even think this works? Like, what, where don't they need a workforce and to live in some places to like produce their profits? And then I realized, like you mentioned in your article, this isn't a crisis for them, right? Like the indebtedness that they can impose upon people, capturing people in debt for the rest of their lives, totally works for them. It does, but it but David Harvey is correct too because it will work for them in a way, but it isn't really good for this system. I mean, if people are 
indebted, that will be a real um, drag on the economy. You know, people can't consume and, you know, invest in, you know, buy their own homes. And, you know, I mean, like, like all of these things sort of drive a capitalist economy and indebtedness is actually kind of a drag on capitalism. But it is one of many ways that capitalism doesn't doesn't provide for its own future. I read this recently. Um, this uh, there was a Marxist political economist named James O'Connor um, who wrote a, um, about. It. I mean, this is sort of similar to the David Harvey quote you just cited. You know, he wrote about how capitalism tends to work against its own future and and even its own present. Like it, it just tends it tends to work against itself. So, you know, it it ravages the very things that it needs to keep going, like land, it, you know, clean air, clean water. Um, it makes the process of life-giving um, and parenthood, like the raising of future workers. Like it makes, it, it vastly complicates and interferes with all of these things. So yeah, it is kind of amazing that capitalism manages to keep going. I mean, because it's it, it's it's got so much going against it, like just on its own terms, like not even, you know, all the cruelties and uh, miseries it inflicts, uh, you know, on all of us as workers. It is always sort of in tension with what it needs. But landlords now don't care um, what happens to tenants. They don't care that, you know, these um, people will become indebted and um, be a drag toward future landlords and and capitalists making profits. Um, they, they're just only concerned about the short term. However, if tenants can't pay rent, they've got a, a short-term problem too. So that's you know where we where tenants and landlords both have a problem. It does offer some potential to um, reach some kind of political confrontation and possible progress. So what are the weapons that the landlord class has? Because so we were talking a little bit about the leverage that might be available to the left right now. What weapons do our enemies have? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to be so hyperbolic. Actually, like, yeah, no, they are our enemies. Some of them are very nice people, I'm sure, but they are the class enemies in a structural sense. Yeah. Okay. So, so what weapons do our enemies have, specifically the landlord class? against us right now? Interestingly, some of those weapons are a little complicated for them. So um, normally they would have eviction, but there is an eviction moratorium in New York. And once the moratorium is lifted, they will presumably have eviction again as a weapon and they will have housing court as a weapon. However, the mechanisms of that will be vastly complicated because there will be so many cases overloading the housing court. You could imagine a situation where it could just be so overloaded that the system might just have to declare this isn't going to work, we can't get through all these cases. So that's one way in which the usual weapons that they have might be disabled. The Normally they have also, you know, they can call upon the cops and to um, turn you out of, of, of your home. But um, that's going to be very difficult at scale if, if, you, if this is really happening to nearly everybody. Um, that's going to um, be difficult, especially with you know, the police force having to deal with the normal things that they have to deal with. But yeah, I think the housing court is going to be very, um, very, very overcrowded. And yeah, in terms of, 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 of weapons, I, I think they are going to be a bit weakened. So that, that too adds some potential to the situation. Curious if you know, like, how is the landlord class embedded in the state? I imagine in New York, there's probably a, a whole host of subsidies that the landlord class has profited from, maybe even historical bailouts that I'm not aware of. But are there any of these ways that they're enmeshed in state powers that also give them more weapons? Deeply. I mean, one of the most significant things is the big landlord class, the um, sort of the big landlords and developers give huge amounts of political donations to Democratic politicians. 
in in New York. So that's why the um, those of us old socialists always said, you know, Bill de Blasio is not really going to be able to be that progressive because you know he he may talk about the two New Yorks and say all these nice things about the ninety nine percent, but he is such a thorough creation in campaign finance terms of the real estate industry. Um, and um, and so he he won't really be able to do much that is progressive. We were kind of right and kind of wrong about that. He has done some good things, but but we were completely right in terms of housing and um, and just uh, you know those those sorts of material issues. That's kind of um, the main way is they embed themselves um, in the state through campaign donations and um, and thus make any kind of legislation that's not in their interests really difficult. But that's something that has started to change. I feel a little embarrassed because there's a lot of people that know a lot more about this than I do. But there is a um, rent guidelines board that is very powerful and sort of sets the terms of like how often rent can be raised on whom. And that's something that has historically been very controlled by the landlord class and is really important. Like it has a lot of power. So that's another way that their interests are embedded in the state. I've been wondering about organizing rent strikes and organizing as a tenant class as opposed to organizing like workplaces. Because from my own local experience, I've attempted to participate in some like tenant organizing. And it it seemed really hard to translate the practices and the kind of weapons that you have in the workplace on the scale of like rent against landlords because it is so embedded and enmeshed in the state. So I'm just wondering, like, what thoughts do you have about that? Like how the like the, the separateness between that that style of organizing versus like the kind of more classical labor organizing. You're right. It's different. Your leverage is a bit different. Your leverage as a tenant over a landlord is different than your leverage as a, a worker over a capitalist. If you, as a worker, organize your fellow workers and go out on on strike, your capitalist, your bosses can't make profits. I mean, you know, if you're very replaceable, they can maybe bring in scabs, but you've created a huge problem for them by walking out on strike. You've created a momentary crisis of profitability that can often be resolved in your favor. That's the beauty of the strike. And with individual buildings and landlords typically works in it can typically work in a similar way like like very often the rent strike is used you know to say like like we have no heat in the winter or there are rats and the landlord hasn't addressed the rat something has made your living conditions really untenable and um, by withdrawing your rent you create a crisis of profitability for your landlord that can be resolved in your favor. They can um, they can turn the heat back on. They can get rid of the rat. But this is a bit different. This is not a situation where your landlord can provide something to you and then um, begin to make profits again cheerfully. This is actually a situation in which the demand is to not pay rent. You're right to um, identify that as being pretty different than a labor strike, because you're asking your your um, the landlord class to be flexible with the tenant class and not require rent, but that is a that is a demand that leaves them with no profits in sight. You know that, that that's a lot bigger of an ask than um, you know can you get the rats out of the building, and it lacks that kind of resolution, the appeal of resolution for them. There's no reason why the landlord class would accommodate that, except en masse, so many people are experiencing this this problem that it is a political problem. You know, they're organizing as a class too. They have demands on the governor as well. So it's not analogous to a typical labor strike. It's more like what happens when people organize to create a broader political crisis and make a big demand on the state. 
that's what I think about too, is like really what it's poised to do is create structural changes. The resolution would be like a fundamental shift of just how the system works. For me, it becomes a little overwhelming when you think about the prospects there, because, you know, I keep going back to the whole, and I'm sure people keep feeding it to me as well, the Rosa Luxemburg line of like, it's socialism or barbarism. Yeah, I think it is. Certainly um, (laughs) rooting really hard for socialism, because I think we're seeing a lot more clearly what barbarism looks like these days. Yeah, well, okay, so maybe this won't be super fun, but like, what would you imagine the immediate barbarous future looks like should the landlord class succeed in this moment, as well as some of the other forces? Oh, unfortunately, it's really easy to imagine that, that we have on top of a crisis of unemployment, uh, which we are definitely going to have in New York and around the country. Um, We would then have a crisis of indebtedness in New York and around the country. And um, even worse, uh, we would have a really serious crisis of homelessness. And remember, things were really bad for many, many Americans before this happened, even. I mean, you know, but we're going to have an escalation of um, what this is not original to Bernie Sanders, but he used this phrase a lot, um, deaths of despair. We're going to see even more of that, um, you know, like people dying from drug use and, and suicide. If the state cannot be successfully pressured to um, give relief to tenants and small homeowners and seriously address the, the crisis on, um, on housing payments, I think we're going to see just a massive amount of um, human misery. I think Ilan Omar, I, I meant to have this the details of this more firmly in my head before we met, but she has a, a piece of legislation to address this on the national level. The federal government is so hopeless right now, but I think we, we've also seen that even the Democrats who are normally so neoliberal in their and so limited, therefore, in their imaginations, are considering much broader forms of relief than they usually do. I don't consider Ilan Omar a neoliberal at all, but I just meant even people like Schumer and Pelosi might be more willing to consider some reforms on that scale if they're pressured to. You know, they won't just do it because, you know, they suddenly realize that capitalism is becoming unsustainable to itself. They are hopefully going to feel more political pressure to at least somewhat expand the social safety net and deal with the housing crisis. So what about imagining what it might look like to go more in the socialist direction of the, in the future? What do you think that would look like? I mean, it's interesting because we could solve a lot of these problems by actually having real public housing and by having public housing that was not just for the very poor, but we could have it. I mean, this is Singapore is not even a socialist place, but um, 80% of the residents live in public housing. It works really well. They They don't have any of these kinds of problems. It's kind of means tested. You pay a little bit more at a higher income, but it's basically available to everybody. And a, a socialist future would look sort of like that, except it wouldn't be means tested. And hopefully um, people would, we would have people at more or less the same income levels. I think in Singapore, like people of really high income who live in public housing, you know, sort of try to get add-ons like a pool in the socialist future. We wouldn't have those people who were um, more advantaged um, than others. Maybe everybody could have a pool, but something like that. Like, I think that it, it can only be solved by a, a massive investment in housing by the state. I think there's um, really any other way. And, you know, when we've seen, I, I think that, that that somewhat gets a a bad rap. Public housing has to be depressing and dangerous. And it, it's that, that's just not the case. We've seen in, in many different societies, they've been able to uh, create public housing that is comfortable and beautiful and works well for everybody. And the reason that 
we make it so horrible and and so like crime ridden and dirty here is that we as a society have decided that people should be punished for being poor and that the public sector is only there to deal with um, an extreme crisis that it isn't something that exists to serve everybody that's the mindset we need to change absolutely yeah I, it makes me it reminds me of like an essay i read a while back by david graber where he just mentioned in passing about how elaborate the new york public library is like when the state wants to invest in things it absolutely can invest in things and and uh, produce something that is uh almost a luxury right yeah exactly it's like the um I don't know if you are familiar with this, but there's a wonderful project by a couple um, University of California professors called the Living New Deal. They have mapped all of the New Deal murals and monuments and buildings all over the country. So you can really see how the government has at times invested in its citizens, I mean, in the workers and artists um, that that made those things, but also in the idea of the public um, on the premise that the public deserve beautiful things. And I think that's absolutely a, um, a mindset that we need to get. There were lots of things that the Roosevelt administration did that were not great, but we, we need to get back to, to, to that way of thinking and carry it into the future. Well, as a way of closing, I was wondering if you could give us kind of a quick update or about what to expect for June 1st, because as you mentioned, the moratorium on evictions was extended, but I'm also assuming that means the rent strike has been extended as well. And what's the kind of news on that? We're going to see even more people who can't pay the rent because it's one thing for people to cobble it together, you know, after a month or two. But if you're um, not an essential worker, if you've been laid off during this time, you know, most people have very little personal wealth to fall back on. So I think you're going to see a, a lot more people that, um, that, that can't pay the rent. Something uh, I forgot to mention is the other day I interviewed Kianga Yamada Taylor, um, who just wrote a, a great book about um, race and home ownership in the United States, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. And um, also, she's just a, a great socialist and someone we all look up to. She noted that, you know, for everything else, if you can't buy groceries, if you can't afford your health care, even the very feeble United States safety net offers you something you know, that you can get food stamps or you can get Medicaid. But if you can't pay your rent, you know, you if you can't uh, like pay for your housing, we really offer uh, basically nothing. Like you can go to the homeless shelter or sleep on the street, which is just an, un, an untenable um, way of living. That's really pretty profound too, that, you know, as, as much as I'm um, you know, we tend to, as socialists, focus on Medicare for all as this big, important demand, which it is. But if you think about it, the healthcare system isn't the primary way that the system punishes people for being poor. It actually really is through housing and like the, the terror of losing your home and being homeless, you know, because we actually provide um, no relief for that at all, and no re no existing remedy. I, that was a really important insight on on her part, and I've been thinking about it all week. And so I think we're going to see um, on June first a lot more people in that precarious situation moving toward a real political crisis. Well, with that, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on Labor Wave. Thank you, my pleasure.